All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry. I was a CW-2 helicopter pilot in Vietnam in the United States Army Aviator, or 1969. I want to welcome you to our program today. It's a very special one. I've got some great guests coming up. We're going to be talking with Alex Kershaw, and Alex has written a book entitled Against All Odds, where he tells us the story of four Medal of Honor recipients from World War II. The stories are great. You've got to stick around for that one. We're also going to have our highlight on the NVBDC uh, membership. Uh, this is going to be Cal Quinn, and Cal is the founder of Bancroft Capital, a Naval Academy graduate, and he is a service-disabled veteran-owned small business. And so we're going to bring him, Cal will be on a little bit later on. But before we get into the program, actually, I need to thank our sponsors because without them, we could never do this program, and we really do appreciate what they do for us here. So I want to mention uh, Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veterans' disability claims. Give uh, Legal Help for Veterans a call at 800-693-4800, or you can go to their website, legalhelpforveterans.com. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for a certification of veteran-owned businesses. For more information, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. You want to do business with the government and you are a veteran-owned small business, these are the people to contact to get certified. The Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, for more information, just go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. And finally, the American Legion Post 46 out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, we want to thank them for their support as well. So we learn about all of these organizations and their services as well as how you can support Veterans Radio by going to our website. That's veteransradio.net slash our sponsors. All right. Just as I promised, we're going to get into the First interview, and this is with, as I mentioned, Alex Kershaw, and I pre-recorded this um, a couple of weeks ago, actually, but the book is great. You're going to love this one. So here we go. So Alex, welcome to Veterans Radio. All right. We're here on Veterans Radio today, and our guest is Alex Kershaw, and Alex has written a book entitled Against All Odds. It's a true story of ultimate courage and survival during World War II, and he highlights um, the adventures, I guess you could say, and of um, four Medal of Honor recipients. And so I want to welcome Alex Kershaw to Veterans Radio. Welcome. Great to be with you. Thank you very much for agreeing to the interview. I think this is going to be fun. Um, so tell me a little bit about your background. You're not native-born American. No, I, uh, I met a beautiful American 28, 30 years ago, and I've been in the U.S. for 28 years. And I'm actually talking to you from very sunny, warm Savannah right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm in Michigan. It's not quite warm yet. <laughs> it will be in about three months. I think so. That's what they said. <laughs> That's the rumor anyway. <laughs> That's going around out there. So your style of writing is really um, interesting. You've kind of focused on World War II, haven't you? Yeah, I've written 12 books, and I think 10 of them are about World War II. Yeah. What is, um, what's the attraction for you? Uh great stories. Uh, I'm a journalist by background, and as soon as I got to start interviewing people that had actually been there, that had been on Omaha Beach during the Battle of the Bulge, etc., 
uh, it was just fantastic fun to go and knock on someone's door and sit down and chat about these incredible episodes in history. So I've always been drawn to the, the personal stories, to the human story. Um, and I've been very lucky to be able to interview well over a hundred World War II veterans and to be able to share their stories with people. Um, it's a, it's a great privilege. It it really is. And I can, I can really relate to that because the whole program got started when I, uh, in a former lifetime, I was, I did insurance and so forth. And I had a client call up about wanting to make sure everything were finalized. And he turned out that he was a World War II veteran and had been uh, in the 101st Airborne and had been on the beaches of Omaha. And, and uh, four hours after I went out there for just to sign a piece of paper, I came out and his wife says he's never told those stories to anybody. And yeah. I, I said, there's something here. There's something yeah. here. And, and my father had uh, been on uh, Iwo Jima and Okinawa in the Coast Guard and LSTs, but he had never said a word about anything and right. um, during one of our programs about the Coast Guard, and I was kind of talking about him, my board operator called me and says, we got this really old guy on the phone, and he wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, so put him on. And he goes, hi, Adele. You know, he says, I knew Bill. And I'm going, Bill, who's Bill? And he, because my dad's name was William Clifton, and he went by Cliff. And he says, no, no, I knew your dad. Boom. That was it. Wow. And his son connected with me, and the next thing you know, we're getting pictures that I'd never seen, and so on and so forth. So I can really understand your passion about this this particular subject. I did want to talk about your style a little bit, because you, you really kind of take nonfiction, but make it really interesting. How, how do you go well, about doing that? Well, I think a lot of people do that. I think it's just basically just trying to tell a story. You know, I I start with the premise that I want to have a scene, I want to develop characters, I want to have reversals, I end my chapters with, you know, cliffhangers. It's just a, it's a thing that a lot of writers do that not many in World War II, I'll give you that, but there are some really good writers in World War II that do it better than I do, but it's just an approach which looks at the reader. You know, I, I always try and think about the reader. I want them to get to the end of the book. I want them to buy the book. I want them to enjoy the book. And I'm always thinking about how how they would enjoy that most. And I think that people root for characters. They want to have a sense of suspense. And they want the, the writer to be able to to engage them however they can. You know, I, I, I think it's just all about trying to make the read as enjoyable as possible, to be honest, you know. And um, people like to read stories where they are excited and where they want to keep turning the pages. Hopefully, I, I, I try and do that. I'm, like, <laughs> I would think that I would like to think that every other World War II writer that is relatively successful is, is, is doing the same thing. And there are lots of them that are doing the same thing as me. I'm, I'm not unique in that sense. Uh, it's uh, something that's been done very well. Yeah, I, I was talking to a, a friend at a, at a program I was at the other day, and I was talking about the book. And I started talking about these these four men, you know, the incredible guys. And they said, "It's it's a true story." And I said, "Yeah, it's a true story." And the way that you presented it was is so effective that you know it really is a page turner. It's one of those things that I you know that I was reading until three or four in the morning, and oh, then going, you. "Oh my gosh, I got to get up soon. <laughs> I better put this thing away." So we are here on Veterans Radio. We're talking with Alec Kershaw, the book 
This particular book is Against All Odds, and it's a story basically of four Medal of Honor recipients. Why did you choose these particular four? What's the, kind of the background of the story? Well, I chose the third division, and then I looked at the third division, and I realized that they had received in World War II 36 Medals of Honor, which is the largest number of any U.S. division in World War II. So I think 90 U.S. infantry divisions at the end of World War II in Europe. The third division has 36 medals, and I think it, it was almost a tenth of the number handed out in the European theater. So I thought to myself, something really interesting is going on here. Yeah. You know, they've got a hell of a lot of brave guys. But the answer really is that the third division lost most men of any division in Europe, and they fought longer and therefore were in more, more combat. And that's why you had such a high number of recipients. So I looked at the 36 guys and I thought, well, who's really interesting? Whose lives intersected? Who served with who? And, uh, you know, all the characters there, they came across each other at some point in the war or, or after the war and after the war and uh, served with each other were in the same battles. So, you know, invasion of Sicily, Anzio, particularly the Battle of the Colmar Pocket, the liberation mm -hmm. of Germany, um, they were in the same battles, going through the same experiences. So that created a greater sense of unity, a more intimate frame for my narrative. Uh, and I just cherry-picked the guys I liked most, the guys that I thought were kind of coolest and uh, were most interesting after the war, too, uh, had the most interesting backgrounds. I, I was looking for the diversity, and I was looking for uh, guys that were still alive after the war, because you've got to remember that more than 50% of them of those medals given the medal of 472 I think medal of honor recipients from World War II as I said before most the majority posthumously awarded but um, I was looking for the most interesting guys I could find you know um, and uh, the ones that came home and the ones that had productive and long lives after the war uh, one, one of the things that I found incredible was not not just their heroics, which in some cases were miraculous, were truly unbelievable. Uh, even to themselves, they couldn't believe they'd been through what they'd gone through and survived. Um, but also how they managed to come back and be so productive, even though they were damaged. Every single one of them was damaged. Some of them showed it, some of them didn't. But every single one of them did their very best over the long term to give back to American society to bring up families and to be productive. And I found that to be, to be honest, I found it more inspirational than what they'd done in the war. Because to some extent during the war, they were doing what they had to do. They mm -hmm. all described it as doing a job. And their right. job was to get it done. And as leaders, they decided to put themselves in the front and get it done rather than let other men around them die doing that. Um, and I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, making any less of their actions, but I was most moved and impressed with their courage and tenacity and perseverance in the rest of their lives when they came home. Right. I mean, and these, these really are incredible stories. Even the, even the background stories before they went into the service, uh, you know, during World War II. And I think that one of the things that's um, kind of, a pro, you know, it's very timely right now, obviously, is um, they came from a variety of backgrounds. I mean, they came from just dirt poor 
Yep. Uh, they came from military backgrounds. They came from, you know, New England, uh, just all over the country. And I, I want to kind of see if we can talk about each one of these people without giving the story away too much. Uh, <laughs> Because I want people to read the book. The book well, is called it's, it's called Against All Odds by by uh, Alec Kershaw, and it, ta- it highlights the lives of four Medal of Honor recipients. And so let's start off with um, Footsie Britt, better known as Maurice yeah. Britt. Well, he was nicknamed Footsie Britt because he had such large feet, um, and those feet were very useful because he was a star athlete at the University of Arkansas. NFL player at Detroit Lions and had a very, very tough upbringing in Arkansas, rural Arkansas. Um, you know, his dad died when he was young. Uh, as with all but one of my characters, just worked, had to work very, very hard all the way through grade school, high school, the Great Depression, new poverty. Uh, they were resilient and tough before they even got into the service. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd, known, they'd all known loss and hardship. Um, I think that made a big difference. Um, you know, Audie Murphy, people know a lot about Audie Murphy, but he went through a horrific childhood. He was uh-huh. abandoned by his father, you know, had a lar- very large family. He lost his mum when he was young. Uh, really knew poverty and and um, heartbreak was uh, just extraordinary that he was able to function after his after his youth, let alone go on to spend over 300 days in combat and and, and do what he did. Um, Michael Daly, Irish Catholic from Connecticut, uh, a fairly privileged upbringing, went to West Point, decided in 1943 he'd had enough of the regimentation, enough of the hazing, to hell with this, threw his books in a corner and said, I want to go and be a grunt. You know, he, he could have been an officer and he... He went on, and he was a grunt, ended up first day in combat on Omaha Beach on June the 6th, 1944, and uh, received the Medal of Honor for actions in April of 1945. So fought all the way from Normandy right to the bitter end. And, uh, you know, he was 19 when he um, performed actions for which he received the Medal of Honor in Nuremberg. Audie Murphy was 19. These people were kids. So I know. They were extremely no. <laughs> young. Imagine that. You're 19, and it's... The first day you were in combat is July 1943. This is Audie Murphy, and you're 19 in 1945, over 250 days later, and you received the Medal of Honor. I mean, I, 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 he looked like a kid. People thought he was uh, one of the characters I write about, Keith Ware, mm-hmm. who was the only draftee in American history to become a general officer. So that's quite an extraordinary achievement. He was Audie Murphy's company commander. On day one, 10th of July 1943, when we invaded uh, Sicily, and he, he pulled Audie Murphy off the line and said, "You know, I'm not going to have any kids get killed under my command." Right. He looks so young. I mean, when you look at the picture of Audie Murphy on the 15th of June 1945, getting the medal put around his neck by General Patch in Salzburg, he looks like a baby. I mean, he still mm. looks like a baby. So imagine what he looked like in 1943. Uh, just uh, extraordinary, and, yeah. and yet, uh, and yet, a lethal killer. I mean, an unbelievable shot. Kid was just a, 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 a unbelievable soldier. Where, who I talked about, who was killed in in Vietnam in 1968. He became the commander of the Big Red One. So, you know, World War Two draftee becomes a lieutenant colonel by the end. Battalion commander. 
uh, ends up being killed as, as the commander of the Big Red One in 1968 in Vietnam. He was interviewed before he went to Vietnam. I think it was by the New York Times in 1965. And uh, he said that Murphy was the greatest soldier he'd ever seen. And uh, that's quite a compliment given that Ware had commanded so many men by then. Mm. Um, there's something quite a supernatural about Murphy. I mean, I don't think that people can quite understand just how phenomenal this guy was. How well, he wasn't, and, yeah, he, and he wasn't a big guy. He was only no, five I mean, for five. Just, I mean, you know, if you had it, I mean, we've got Tom Brady in the NFL. Yeah. I mean, he's like, you know, right. I, would you say he's the greatest quarterback ever? I Probably. Mean, I mean, there's a good okay. argument going there, but you know, yes, he would be one of the well, goats out there. Audie Murphy would be the greatest NFL player of <laughs> all time without a dispute. If we look at World War II, I mean, uh, the, he was the most decorated soldier of World War II. Some people say he's the most decorated soldier of all time. But there was just a, uh, some people are born with just extraordinary talents that only emerge under stress and uh, in situations where they are tested to the absolute limit. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank God we had guys like Audie Murphy. Uh, I mean, just, you know, you need people like that. People don't understand, I think you understand, and a lot of people listening understand that in combat, very few people attack and get the job done and take out enemy positions they that you know even in world war ii it was a big problem you know even under fire around about a third of american soldiers in normandy for example only around about a third would fire back even when they're being fired at by the enemy mm. their natural inclination was not to kill they came from the ways of peace and democracy they were not born killers they were not trained properly to kill we dealt with that in korea better we dealt with it very well by the time we come into vietnam and today you know soldiers are trained superbly well to actually fire back and and do mm -hmm. the job but in world war ii it, you know the 16 million people that served in world war ii less than five percent saw combat and in combat what i mean by that is that less than those far less than those five percent were in situations where they actually had to attack and take out objectives on the ground and where they led people in very, very serious combat. Um, and very few of those people performed like Audie Murphy and the guys I write about. And the reason why they were so respected, why they were so well recognized, why they had to be recognized, was to show to other people that this is what we needed to do to get the job done. Uh, you, battles came down to, in some cases, individuals. Omaha Beach, you could maybe, you could maybe bring it down to you know, 30,000 guys landed on Omaha Beach on 6th of June, 1944. Out of those 30,000, maybe you got 200 that made a difference, that mm -hmm. led those guys off the beach, that took out the enemy, that put their lives on the line and got the job done, took out the pillboxes, did what they were ordered to do. So I don't think people really understand how rare and how important this number of aggressive killers and guys that get the job done Oh, they're the ones that win you battles well, you, 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 and win you wars. You have to have those people out there. And I, the, yeah. the thing about all, all four of the people in the book is that they all led by example. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's always hard in my experience uh, in, in Vietnam was that, you know, if my company commander, I, I was a helicopter pilot. So if my, my company commander would go out on missions every once in a while, it gave him credibility to me. Because I said, if he's going to do it, 
well, then I sure can do this myself. And right from the beginning, you, you write about how these guys started off in North, North Africa yep. and kind of moved across there. And then they into the Battle of Sicily and Italy and all those other things, which most of us really don't have a, a, a clear understanding of what that the whole thing of trying to retake Italy was. I think, you know, most of us are focused on D-Day and what was going on out, you know, in the Pacific. But, oh, my gosh, this is – these men and the, even the limited number that you were talking about – you know, fighting through mountains and villages and raging rivers and yep. and the bad guys are everywhere. And the bad guys are very good at killing you. Right. And did and did kill a lot of you. Um, you know, the a lot of the war in Italy was about attrition. You know, we had to take one mountain after another and guess who was defending that next mountain? So the Germans under Kesselring waited for us to come. And they would build one fortified line after another, and we would attack, lose a hell of a lot of guys, take the next mountain. But just over the horizon was another big mountain. And, uh, so they, they, you can imagine the effect on morale. You know, you, you lose half your company one day, and you, get, you take the objective in atrocious weather, and then you look, look, look through the clouds and the rain, and there's another mountain there. And you know yeah. that next week or the next day, You've got to take that mountain. So it was uh, an incredible, epic ordeal. And the fact that those guys just kept at it was incredible. Uh, in Italy, the, the guys that I write about, the third division, they were on the line for almost three months, three months in brutally wet, cold, miserable conditions, taking mountain after mountain, taking terrible casualties, getting to the point where the division basically would have fallen apart. If they stayed another week or you know, by November 1943, another couple of weeks, the 3rd Division wouldn't have been functional. Mm -hmm. It was that worn down, that many casualties. Um, it's incredible that they could endure that. Uh, and it's a, I'm inspired by all these stories, but particularly by the 3rd Division story because they lost so many men. They lost more men than any other division in Europe. They fought for longer. And to Imagine being at the beginning of their campaign in North Africa and mm -hmm. then getting to Germany, being in Sicily in July of 1943 and ending up in Nuremberg or Berchtesgaden because the 3rd Division went right to the very end as far as you could go. There were so few left. And imagine how that felt to be Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy, the only survivor of his company that was still in, in service at the end of the war, was still in Germany. Everybody else had been captured wounded or killed he's the only guy left um, so that was a miracle these guys knew that they had lived miracles they had been incredibly not only because they put their lives on the line so often and every single guy I write about led from the front mm -hmm. Keith Ware in Siegelsheim in January 1945 in the Colmar pocket he's a battalion commander he's in the front with a machine gun with a BAR and a machine gun taking out machine gun nests because other guys aren't doing it fast enough. They're not doing it properly. They're not doing the job he's given them. So he, guess what, what did he do? The battalion commander, the lieutenant colonel, he, right. gets, he gets the BAR and says, follow me, and shows them how to do it. Um, because he knows that if he doesn't do it, a hell of a lot of his guys are going to get killed. They uh -huh. have to take this objective. If they don't do it now, if they don't do it this way, 
if he doesn't show them how to do it, they're not going to do it, and a lot more guys are going to die. The, the equation was very simple, and I won't go on too long. The equation was very simple for Murphy, Ware, Britt, and Daly. Each one of these guys that received the Medal of Honor that I write about, it was a very simple equation. I do this job, I put my life on the line, and we lose less men. If I mm -hmm. keep doing this job, we'll lose less and less men. I might as well do it because that means there'll be way more Americans left alive at the end of this war than there would be otherwise. Yeah, I saw that, that as, a, as a, a, it was a common theme for all four of them is that, you know, they were doing this because they were actually trying to protect the, the other members of their companies and, and so forth. And I mean, these every, every one of them were wounded yeah. um, more than once in many cases. Uh, the, the first one we talked about was, you know, the uh, Brit, he, he lost his arm. Yeah. Um, I forget how many times Audie Murphy was wounded. And uh, I was just reading, I can't remember now if it was Daly or I think it was Daly that, you know, was reminded almost every day because he had a piece of shrapnel still in his foot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, uh, Morris Britt, who became, after the war, became a lieutenant governor of Arkansas, was in pain for the rest of his life. And uh, he died of complications from old wounds when he, the reason why he died was because his body had been so damaged by World War II and they operated on him and there was a complication from an old World War II wound. Uh, Audie Murphy wounded twice. He had a couple of pounds of his buttock taken away because he had gangrene. So, hmm. you know, he, he definitely felt that for the rest of his life. Uh, when, yeah. you watch the, when you watch Audie Murphy, Audie Murphy movies, you got to remember that every time he walked, he was in pain. You know, the, uh, I was told a story that when he became a movie star, the producers in Hollywood said, you know, can you keep your back straight? Walk like a cowboy. Walk like a, <laughs> walk, walk like a superstar. You know? yeah. Be the hero that you are. And people didn't realize that actually it was, it was painful for him to walk with his back straight because of his wounds. You know, he, had a, he literally had been shot by a sniper in late 1944, taken back to a hospital operated on and they took two or three pounds of flesh from his buttock Ooh. out of his out of, out of you know so that's not something that you don't feel for the rest of your life you know no i, I can only imagine I was, I was i was just thinking that because i you know i don't know if it's my generation now i love watching cowboy movies and uh so he's on every yeah. every day it seems like on on stars but um reading his story and finding out that was it kirk douglas that that decided that he needed to be a movie star? Uh, James Cagney. James Cagney, I'm sorry. Right, James, so James uh, Cagney. Murphy was, Murphy was on, the, on the, the front cover of uh, Life magazine. You should imagine that. In 19 years old, you were on the front yeah. cover of Life magazine. And I think it was July 1945. So Murphy became the poster boy for the American GI in World War II. And Cagney picked up Life magazine and went, that guy's a handsome dude. You know, <laughs> so invited him literally contacted him in Texas and invited him to come out and stay with him and tried to make him into a movie star. And guess what? He succeeded. So, you know, that was, that was quite, that was quite the story about yeah. <laughs> becoming a cowboy, a kind of a cowboy star mostly it seemed like. And then he, and then he, he actually uh, filmed a movie about his own experiences, which must have been almost impossible to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, he, he wrote a co he had a, a co-writer with him, but the book is the really famous book to Helen back. And uh, he actually started himself in the movie. He was persuaded to do that. 
And uh, the movie came out in 1955. It was a big success at the time. He made quite a bit of money from it. But, um, you know, uh, it was, must have been incredibly painful to play himself going through these scenes, for example, where he, he lost his best friend, Lackie Tipton. I've been to the vineyard in the south of France where he lost his best friend. That was the only time, August 1944, when Odie Murphy was seen to cry during the whole war. Um, so to relive the, the death of your best friend on celluloid, to act it yeah. out, to, to go back to that most traumatic period. Um, and it's interesting because when they made the movie, they wanted to show a scene of, 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 of Murphy receiving the medal. You know, they, I mean, every producer was like, we've got to show you getting the medal. Yeah. I mean, that's why you're, that's why you're famous, you know? Um, and Murphy didn't want to do it. He said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. Uh, they finally persuaded him because, you know, hey, we're making a movie here. We need to see that. Mm -hmm. But he, he didn't want to do it because, like, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. These guys are, are not glory hounds. They, they don't want to promote themselves. The medal means a lot more to them. It, it doesn't, it's not about themselves. It's about their buddies, the people left behind. The medal symbolizes, yes, their courage, but it symbolizes to all the Medal of Honor recipients I've ever met. They said to me, to a man, this medal stands for all the guys that didn't come home. Right. All my friends that didn't come home. And, you know? and, and what all of their, the sacrifices of all their friends and comrades made is that's, and that's why they, you know, they have to project. Is the one that lived local here, Charlie Kettles, uh, said, you know, I, I have to project this, this image to honor those guys who went before me. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, uh, it's, it's just, it's, 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 <laughs> I'm I'm stuttering for words here because it was it's just such an emotional read. Uh, it, it is against all odds by Alec Kershaw, and he talks about you know not only with the battle scenes and everything that are in the book, but he also talks at the you talk at the end about how their lives ended. And and, and Audie, Audie Murphy's was I thought was really sad. Yeah, uh, he was killed in a plane crash. Um, he had some financial difficulties toward the end of his life, and it was interesting though is he was anti-war. He ended up being anti-war uh, as far as Vietnam War with his own sons. He didn't want them to yeah. go. We're going to take a quick break right now and honor our Medal of Honor recipient for this week. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue the interview with Alex Kershaw. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Private Dale Hansen killed 12 Japanese soldiers in a one-man attack on their positions. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Hansen unhesitatingly took the initiative during a critical stage of the action and armed with a rocket launcher, crawled to an exposed position where he attacked and destroyed a strategically located hostile pillbox. With his weapon subsequently destroyed by enemy fire, he seized a rifle and continued his one-man assault. Reaching the crest of a ridge, he opened fire on six Japanese and killed four before his rifle jammed. Attacked by the two remaining Japanese, he beat them off with the butt of his rifle and then climbed back to cover. Returning with another weapon and supply of grenades, 
He fearlessly advanced and destroyed a strong mortar position and annihilated eight more of the enemy. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Hi, we're back here on Veterans Radio with our guest today, Alex Hershaw, and we're going to continue the story about his new book, Against All Odds. I think I think that was in 1971. So you know the Vietnam War was, a, as you know, was a different kind of war by 1971 than it was in 1965, and even in even in 1968 before Tet. Right. Um, but it was a brave thing in a way for the most decorated superhero from World War II to say publicly in 1971, "I don't want my sons to serve in that war." Um, I admired Murphy for being honest. Whether you agree with him or not, I, he was always very honest. You know, he said, it was a, this is a guy that didn't say a lot, but when he said it, he meant it. Um, and, you know, had, was very conflicted about war. Um, you know, someone went to interview him, I think it was in 1968, an Esquire reporter, and uh, Murphy didn't even know where all his medals were. He'd given, he'd given away a lot of his medals to the neighborhood kids. You know, that, it didn't, <laughs> It, it, it's not. It was not something that he wanted to glamorize. You know, right. he, he said several times, "The last thing that I want to do is make war seem sexy and glamorous, and try mm-hmm. and make it seem like this is something that everybody should be doing all the time. That you know, it's all about glory." And it, it, because he knew it wasn't. It was about terrible trauma and loss and death. Um, yes. So yeah, you know, he uh, he. I I really I really really came to admire Audie Murphy as a very disturbed but incredibly generous human being. Not only by putting his life on the line so long in World War Two, but also the causes that he kept dear to his heart after the war. He very much was about um, honouring his fellow veterans, serving the cause of looking after veterans. Um, you know he. He remained incredibly close to the people he'd served with, and uh, it was just a. Given what he suffered internally, the internal wounds, it's quite incredible that he could be so productive as he was. You know. And I, I remember reading the, the toward the the end of the life of Michael Daly, and when he's um, every Memorial Day, he doesn't go to parades. He just kind of goes away you know i mean he goes walks on a beach where he was and he kind of stayed away from those things because it was such a traumatic day for him because all of the people that he lost uh during world war ii would just kind of flash before his eyes and he just needed to be alone and i can understand that um many veterans that i've talked to and i think sometimes myself included that those days are so difficult um because you do you start flashing back and you see all your friends that didn't come home and that's what that was. What was so um, powerful f- f- uh, to me about where um, 
Because here's a guy, as you mentioned, you know, he's drafted, he, he goes up through the ranks, he's got, you know, he's got the decorations up, every, you know, everything imaginable, and he he volunteers to go to Vietnam almost. He says, no, I want to go to Vietnam, and he's, at, you know, head of the Big Red One, and because um, he, he, was, he was killed out in the area where I was, and I was there a year later, but, oh. and out in Loch Ninh, and um, you know, doing these recon things. And I can remember, you know, a general hopping on my aircraft and going, okay, I want to go down there. And I'm going, what are you, crazy? <laughs> you don't want to go down there low and slow and look for the bad guys because, you know, we're, we're flying in this, you know, boxcar and uh, they might see us and might notice us that down there. And it it was so sad for me that, that, that he ended up, you know, crashing into the jungle and uh, it just brought back a, a lot of things for me. But um, that took courage. And, and these, all of these men, not only did they receive a Medal of Honor, many of them had distinguished service crosses. They had, you know, silver stars, silver stars bronze stars with V devices. Um, a picture in the book of, of Audie Murphy's, he looks like a display for medals. <laughs> I mean, they're everywhere. And I can't imagine, I can understand why he didn't want to have his own little shadow box made because it would take up a whole wall. Well, I, I know that you would know uh, as well as anybody that um, the bronze star is not easily come by. Silver star is definitely not easily come by. No. The DSC and then the Medal of Honor. And then you got Morris Britt had, was the first American in World War II to get all four. Murphy's got all of them. The only one that... Uh, where I didn't have was the DSC. The only one that Daly had was the D- didn't have was the DSC. Daly had three silver stars. I mean, <laughs> these guys were courageous. Every day they were in combat in some way, either were engaged mm-hmm. in the enemy or the courage to lead, to organize, to have the spiritual strength to carry on. And I was very moved by Ware's story too because he didn't need to be there. No, he'd been in World War World War Two. He's a commander. He's a general. He doesn't need to be flying recon missions in a helicopter. And the reason why he did that was to find out what the enemy were up to, but also to visit his men, because mm-hmm. he knew that by being in front of his men, that was the most positive and powerful thing that he could do himself, to show them that they were not being abandoned in the jungle, that he cared about them, and that would motivate them. That's that's true. And that, that's what I learned eventually, finally figured it out, because I was only 20 one or so myself at the time. So um, the other thing I did want to point out to our audience is it, you have to read this book because you're also going to get into personalities of names that we're all familiar with. Uh, you've got Patton in there, you know, <laughs> holding back generals who have taken towns and stuff so he can drive his Jeep through and get, you know, getting them, getting the newspapers um, and some of the other things that, that go on over there. So I really encourage our audience to go out and get this story. I mean, you're going to, you're going to love it, I think. It's Against All Odds by Alex Kershaw. Um, Medal of Honor Day is coming up, and I think that uh, it's going to be great. I, I just Thank encourage so people. Thank you so much. Thank I've got you. A new, another interview. Thank you so much. It was oh, wonderful. that's okay. Thank you very much for Thank coming you. by. Thank you. We'll see you again. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. See, I told you you'd really like that interview, and the book is great. Make sure that you go out and get this book, Against All Odds by Alex Kershaw. Great stories. Just. Amazing stories.
All right, I'm going to do a little quick little transition here and go into our um, highlighting the member from the NVBDC, and that is Cal Quinn. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, he is the founder of Bancroft Capital. He is uh, Bancroft Capital is a service disabled veteran owned small business. He is also a graduate of the Naval Academy. And uh, the interview was done with uh, my partner, Jim Falsone. And so here's Jim and Cal. Welcome. I am Jim Fossone, and this is Veterans Radio's Spotlight on National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org. Veterans Radio America, a nonprofit, has a partnership with NVBDC.org uh, to spotlight what its contributions are and what its members are doing every month. And NVBDC is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses of really all sizes. It is also a 501c3 nonprofit that was established in 2013. It addresses the growing need to identify and certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses for the corporate marketplace and for the government as well. NVBDC administers a rigorous certification process designed to withstand the scrutiny of corporate entities seeking to utilize SD and VOBs. So we want to welcome this month to the spotlight Cal Quinn, founder of Bancroft Capital and a certified service-disabled veteran-owned small business specializing in institutional brokerage and capital markets accounts. Uh, Cal, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you uh, for having me, and uh, thank you for what you do to support veterans and veteran initiatives. Well, we're always glad to have uh, on a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, and we're going to talk about your service a, <laughs> a little later. You mean uh, you let the West Pointers in as well? We do. Normally, I, you know, I've got okay. a few things to say, but uh, it noted yeah. you got an honorable discharge, which is a little surprising. Yeah. 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 But. We won't even mention the uh, the Air Force or Coast Guard guys. Uh, f- fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'm kind of interested. You're in the financial services sector. Can you tell us a yes, little bit about what Bancroft Capital does and why it was important to get certified as a veteran-owned business? Yep, absolutely. So Bancroft Capital is a service-disabled, veteran-owned and operated broker-dealer and investment bank. We operate five business units, fixed income, sales and trading, equity trading, cash management, capital markets, and public finance. Uh, what the, the, the function that we serve in the marketplace is really, uh, Jim, that, that, that of a real estate broker in a real estate transaction, where by we match buyers with sellers, but we just do it in very large institutionally sized transactions. That really amounts to most of the services that we deliver as an institutional broker dealer and investment bank. The um, importance of an MVBDC certification, I think, is a, is a question that needs to be answered on two fronts. And, and first is uh, we live in a capitalistic society. In fact, I think capitalism uh, maintains uh, as, as one of the greatest bastions of hope uh, throughout the world, that through one's own hard work and diligence, uh, they might create a greater prosperity and hope for their family, that they would be rewarded for that effort and that labor, Right. Um, I, I think that's uh, a, a wonderful uh, opportunity and, and, a, and a great, um, you know, offering of help uh, to anybody who's fortunate enough to live in a capitalist society. What that means is we must provide value to our customers and our counterparties, right? We must 
allow them to to create uh, better products and services or create greater profits and ultimately um, you know grow their businesses uh, through the support of of whatever products and services we're delivering into our customer base right uh, we have to be a value add counterparty uh, it's up to us to develop that value add uh, proposition, but quite often it is very, very difficult uh, to get into um, a customer relationship, right? It doesn't really even matter necessarily what industry or sector we are talking about. Jim, the reality is that most people have their friends and they are not interviewing for new friends, right? Right, right. <laughs> so yep. the opportunity for us to establish a dialogue with somebody who may well very much uh, require the services that we offer, right? But just don't know that we exist. And, and aren't aware of the value that we can deliver in their organization. We're just a, a, an unknown to them. Our opportunity to enter into a dialogue with a prospective customer uh, is facilitated through the MVBDC certification. And, and not just the certification, but the vetting and history, uh, the, the credibility of Keith himself, uh, who has been doing this for so many years to support veterans and, and others who care about veterans and want to work with veterans because of what we offer uh, to the civilian marketplace. Uh, often we talk, uh, Jim, we talk about things like uh, diversity and inclusion, which I think is a very, very important initiative for our country to embrace. And, and sometimes often that conversation stops, Jim, with diversity. That is the capacity for uh, us to identify the difference in, in us and another individual. You know, um, you know, tall, short, brown hair, black hair, uh, blue eyes, green eyes, whatever identifying the difference between two individuals or necessarily two organizations, any fool can do, generally speaking, right? I think what diversity and inclusion in our country, in our communities, and in the, 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 uh, in the civilian uh, marketplace, it must take, we must take the, the next natural progressive step in that dialogue to not just diversity, but inclusion. And that is valuing the difference. Right. Not just identifying the differences in, 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 in people and organizations, but valuing the differences, especially in individuals. Right. And if we can harness, if we can value those differences and harness those differences, then we can collectively, corporately, we can be better than the, the sum of the individuals. Right? Well, and what we your be better people, what your certification by NVBDC allows you then to do is be identified as a legit Disabled veteran-owned business, correct. And, and, and to use the sort of leverage that that certification does to sort of uh, allow you to get uh, introduced to a whole new set of possible customers. Absolutely true. But 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 I, I think as I was kind of talking through the inclusion side, the the disabled veteran and veteran communities, right, especially those that served in combat theater like I have and 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 served over the last you know, 20 plus years, right? The perspective that we bring to the civilian marketplace is very, very unique, Jim. We represent half of 1% of the U.S. population. But our perspective, driven by our experiences, right, by our background, uh, by, by the things that we have seen and done, we can bring a great deal of unique value to our civilian counterparties and to the civilian marketplace. And yes, so the, the NVBDC certification identifies us as who we are, right, with our set of experiences. And we may also be ethnic and gender minorities, right? We may, we, we are all disabled uh, Americans, right? But 
we represent all three of those diversity initiatives. But as we are introduced as an MVBD certified business, our counterparties know they're dealing with a veteran, right, who brings that perspective. And that perspective, I have found to be incredibly valuable in the civilian marketplace and often uh, underrepresented, right? And so it's a great opportunity as an MVBDC certified business to earn uh, consideration from your counterparties based on your identity, on the ethos of your organization. One of the things that I'm always amazed at is it seems that if you're NVBDC certified, and because of the way in which Keith King is the founder of NVBDC, is such an advocate for veteran-owned businesses, there's a lot of possible networking that can go on and does go on. Have you experienced that, uh, Cal Quinn, founder of Bancroft Capital? Well, that is the very intent of uh, of the consortium, isn't it, right? I mean, it is the idea of, of collecting individuals who have like mind, right, and and want to be able to uh, to, to partner with veteran-owned businesses, uh, civilian organizations who care about the value of that 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 portion of our our country's population and believe in in their unique ability uh, to deliver valuable services and and as I mentioned, you know that that diversified perspective. Uh, into their organization. So collaboration, communication, networking, you know, and I, I, I loved uh, back when we were able to do it. I don't know whether you remember this way back when, Jim, but we'd actually get into a conference hall uh, with the MBVDC group and be able to, to share our business and share stories and learn more about our customers and, and do it over cocktails and, and conversations. Those uh, those conferences were incredibly valuable. Now, the MVBDC has done a wonderful job of trying to facilitate that in, in a COVID environment, but I'm hopeful, Jim, that we're moving back to the world where we can get face to face again. They tell and me that's, they tell me that's going to happen this year. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about it yet, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe it's coming. I believe it's coming, but super exciting because yes, you know, that, uh, that dialogue of veteran owned businesses with uh, civilian business counterparts who are interested in our businesses is incredibly valuable. And it's not just valuable to the MVBDC firms. It's also valuable to those civilian organizations as well. Absolutely. And we appreciate uh, Cal Quinn being in the spotlight uh, for NVBDC and his uh, outfit, Bancroft Capital. I want to thank Jim and Cal for uh, that spotlight from NVBDC, that's what they do. They help certify small business owners that are veterans. I think it's a great opportunity for all of you out there that have a small business and you are a veteran. So get yourself certified. I also want to thank Alex Kershaw for being on the program and talking about his book, Against All Odds. And I really do encourage you to go out and get that. You can get it on Amazon, probably just about any bookstore that's out there. It's a story of four Medal of Honor recipients. I think you'll really enjoy it. I think it's very timely. And it's just just great stories. I think it'll really pull at your emotions. Um, I want to thank everybody, for, as I said, for the help of being on the program. Before we go out today, I'm going to thank our sponsors, of course, but also I'm going to be playing a song from our guest from last week, and that was Operation Song. And Operation Song, as, I, as we talked about, was a group of veterans that get together, they tell their stories, they work with uh, musicians from the Nashville area, 
and the musicians and songwriters get together with the veterans and then they write a song and they produce the song. And so the song that we're going to hear in a little bit is entitled Talk About It. And of course, all veterans are supposed to talk about their, you know, their adventures and problems and emotions and everything. And most of us don't. So, you know, this song I think is going to be a good one to go out on. But I want to make sure that I do thank everybody for being on the program today. And I want to make sure also that I thank you, our audience. And I would really appreciate it if you would go to our website, veteransradio.net, and leave some comments about today's program so we can know what you want for uh, future programming, uh, what you liked about this program, what you think we can do to improve. And the other thing I'd like you to add in there is if you know of any radio stations in your area that you think would be interested in carrying Veterans Radio, let us know and we'll contact them and see if we can get on the air in your area. And, of course, we're always looking for support from patriots just like you uh, to help us keep our website, social media going, and uh, all of the other stations that we are on around the country and our podcasting uh, adventures. <laughs> Sometimes it seems that way, that's for sure. But there are a few costs that are involved. So if you do, you can help us out. Just go to our uh, page, our website, veteransradio.net, and click on support, and that would be great. I want to thank you very much in advance. Uh, to remind you that Veterans Radio is a production of Veterans Radio America, a 501c3 nonprofit or corporation, and since it is a nonprofit corporation, all of your donations and sponsorships may be tax deductible. So help us out if you can. We really do appreciate it. And I'm going to go now and we're going to transition, or let's say we'll do a crossfade into the song, uh, Talk About It, from Operation Song. So until next week, which is our benefits program, so don't forget to send us all that information. If you have a question for our, our panel of experts on disability benefits, send us an email, click on the contact form on the Veterans Radio website, and we'll answer your questions next week here on Veterans Radio. And until then, this is Dale Throneberry for all of us here at Veterans Radio. You are dismissed. They tell you suck it up. Here's your straw if you want to lead. Don't let me see you bleed. But when the pressure builds and you tried it all, don't be afraid to make that call and talk about it. Let it
Don't matter how 